This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons, who are my personal lords and saviors. The patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days are Tobias, Jonathan, Meredith, Jex Milagro, Nephilim Shale, and Matthew. Thank you so much. And for anyone who wants to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar a month or more, you get extra content every single week, including my weekly show, House of Heretics, with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic Timothy McPherson, where we talk about philosophy, religion, current events, all kinds of interesting stuff from, from our slightly opposing, somewhat overlapping perspectives. So if that is interesting to you, then please sign up. For real, I need the money. Please sign up. My van is like barely holding on for dear life, and it is probably going to explode at any second. So a new car is in my near future, and I really don't want to have to suck dicks under bridges to get there. You see, I believe in resisting the gig economy and not turning my hobbies, like sucking dicks under bridges, into jobs. I believe in keeping hobbies and jobs separate. So I want to keep dick sucking separate from the capitalistic machine. All right. Also, we have some amazing shows coming up. Bart Ehrman, the world-renowned biblical scholar. We're going to talk about his new book, Armageddon. Also, the White House correspondent, John Ward, to talk about his new book about evangelicalism. And Ali Henney a black activist to talk about her new book, I Will Not Shut Up. So some fantastic episodes. Oh, and also another round with my conservative Christian sister, Elizabeth Schultz, where she will come on and torment me with uh, questions and uh, about my atheism, about my Satanism, and we'll have another sibling bitch fight, and it will be a good time. So if all of that is interesting to you, please hit the subscribe button so that I will keep showing up in your podcatcher like a serial killer who just keeps breaking down your door like Michael Myers. All right. With all of that out of the way, I am here with Lucian Greaves, co-founder and spokesperson for the Satanic Temple, and his cat, creatively called Kitten. Yep. <laughs> We're here. We are here. How are you? How's your how's your day going? You know, not bad. How about yours? It's all right. It's been very busy. It's been a very, very busy week. Every spring feels completely insane to me. Hold on. Let me start my timer here. Okay. And uh, how many cats do you have, by the way? Do you have the two? No, just, just the one, but... She's an enormous presence, and here she is. Yes, I can making see sure that. to dominate this, uh, dominate my screen already. I do an interview; she participates. Yeah, she's been waving her butthole in the in the webcam like a cam girl. You take it. <laughs> so uh, it's been a while. It's it's been several weeks since you've been on, and um, since then, as always, there is so much that happens in the world that's worth talking about. You recently wrote an article on your Patreon. Hold on, let me pull it up here. By the way, everyone should go subscribe 
to Lucian's Patreon. You wrote a, a really interesting article called Search Engines and Satanists, where you discuss chat GPT. Uh, what, what was the basic idea behind this? Well, you know, it's good that I, I take an opportunity to elaborate on, uh, on the essay. So I'm, I'm glad to talk about that because some people misinterpreted it as me being anti-AI or other such things. And I also want to be clear that I don't have an expertise in AI. I don't have an expertise in, in, in writing code or computer engineering or any of those types of things. And that's not the angle I'm approaching this with. You know, I think if I have any area of, of expertise along with this, or at least a unique perspective, I think it's in seeing how some of these implementations in social media, like algorithmic changes and things like that, might affect the broader culture at large. And I don't do that just from reading things about uh, about what the data shows on you know, the, the directions these things are going and that type of thing. But just from being a public person who has organically a large following and doesn't really use social media socially, but uses it more uh, as, you know, part of my career trajectory, I think maybe I see a bit more clearly sometimes changes in the information environment because I see just general population reactions to things. And I know that the Satanic Temple itself is kind of an organization of interest on a really low scale in international politics, you know, and not not that, you know, the Satanic Temple will release a statement and, you know, interest rates will, will go up or, or decline or anything like that. But we know that Russia has tried using us in their propaganda or, or has used us in their propaganda and, and will probably continue to do so in a way that shows that they, they pay attention to our our social media. And in that light, I was able to see how trolling activity changed, you know, prior to the election, immediately re leading up to the election. I feel like I had a good sense of almost exactly when Russian trolls really activated and that kind of thing. So when I hear that there's a new implementation of, uh, you know, a, uh, a social media service or search engines or something like that, you know, I think I have a, a better than a lay person's understanding, not just from having that position, but reading a lot of material about it as, as to what that might do. And to me, it was just insane that there wasn't more of a dialogue along with the idea of rolling out ChatGPT as a search engine. Um, there, there just didn't seem to be enough discussion about what the ramifications of that were. And the discussion that was had, you know, was kind of, was kind of basic, I thought. People were concerned about accuracy and things like that, but they really weren't. I, I didn't hear a whole lot uh, in the way of concern as, as to how this might affect us socially. The idea of there being one answer to any particular question that somebody puts into a search engine and that one answer being considered to be the voice of the company that released the, the, the search engine chat rather than a list of sources, which is what we get now, which while 
in certain algorithms, certain viewpoints or certain uh, certain materials are already suppressed. There isn't that added element of a company thinking that they need to take ownership of it. And there aren't those uh, efforts to try to cohere the one perfect answer, which is, I think, going to be a losing battle. So I got messages from people, you know, saying I, I didn't, you know, this, this, this confuses me that you would be anti-AI. You didn't strike me as kind of an anti-tech person or, or whatever. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Uh, artificial intelligence has already done incredible things and stands to do other incredible things. And I think it will continue to do uh, really interesting things. But chat GPT so far feels like the least of it to me. And it feels like there's just this kind of shiny new toy. And it seems like it's interesting for, you know, creating these results on interesting little commands people put you know like write a uh, a ritualistic hymn in the in the voice of you know bob dylan lyrics or something like that and people have come up with all kinds of creative things to have chat gpt do but when it comes to accurate answers it's really found wanting and that can be catastrophic i think in certain scenarios and i wasn't just talking about people being unjustly unjustly maligned which is a problem like if you're starting to look up individuals and you know the artificial intelligence is making claims like you know that you've been accused of pedophilia or something like that when in fact you know it could be you know somebody from gray faction uh you know uh when it when we're arguing against uh the fundamental pillars of what the satanic panic was and people claiming that uh they were just trying to uh to defend children from predators and things like that and they made up this these bizarre uh conspiracy theories to go along with that premise which we see with QAnon now and things like that you know people have people within the conspiracy world have have called me a pedophile protector just for denying the denying that uh you know, hypnotic regression is is uh, is prone to bring forth accurate recollections and things like that. You, you don't want that kind of you don't want that kind of thing in an answer. But if you try to mitigate that, also does that tend to have an over redemptive effect on people where they really do have crimes in their past and those aren't coming up? You know that kind of thing. And and I just feel like w- with the horrors we've seen wrought by the introduction of the algorithmic bubble where companies have tried to manufacture people's searches to best suit what they're probably looking for, which is a benign motive, right? But we've seen what that happened. It's really had people thinking that the way they think is the majority opinion, in fact, is the only opinion and that they're right about everything and they're only exposed to generally the things they agree with are the things they'll be most outraged against and unpersuaded by. And I really feel that that has contributed more than anything to our current state of tribalism and polarization. There's not anybody theorizing in this who would say that it's played no role. But I think I'm on this on the end of the spectrum that says it's played a stronger role than I think most people even give it credit for. Because I think a lot of the other factors that people look at have been constant over time and are unconvincing. 
And I feel like social media interactions, the, the algorithmic bubbles, those have been the real changes in the information environment that we can see have gone completely parallel, run parallel to this growing divide, you know, political divide we see. And I think introducing search AI really stands to really put that into hyperdrive and in ways that can only be counterproductive. And I honestly do not see any benefit from it, except from the idea that it's kind of convenient in that you get your, your, your one answer and in, in a kind of conversational context, you can ask the search engine a question and it gives you a coherent answer, but whether that answer is accurate or not is never going to be something that's not open to debate. I think some people have this idea that if they just adjust the parameters just right, there's not going to be any argument. And that's utter bullshit because, you know, there's certain questions that are within the realm of hard sciences in which, sure, as far as we know right now, there's only one credible answer to give. But with so many questions, so many topics... There's just too much nuance and there's too much that's debatable or arguable. And I just can't see one answer conversationally given, giving any justice to that whatsoever. I honestly think we're better off having a list of sources. So you see what sources we're relying upon. And if, you know, the, the, the companies themselves aren't taking ownership of those answers and, and aren't being made to, to put parameters in place that are meant to mitigate offense, because so, that's always going to be a losing battle. So what you're describing is the um, so what you're describing is like Google integrating artificial intelligence into the search engine. That's what you're discussing. So then what that removes, what that would remove is our ability to actually parse information and sources because the AI would be doing that for us. Oh, and plus it's all proprietary. Like you don't see any of the training sets for ChatGPT. We don't know how it's being trained. They we don't, don't even who- know. They the, the designers don't even know how it works, really. I mean, they might know what it's being trained on, but in terms of the, the technology itself, what's going on inside the technology, they don't know how it is doing what it's doing. Right, but that's not unusual for for AI. Good AI is going to work that way. Good AI is AI because it's taking so much information that's able to parse through so swiftly uh, and uh, incohere its response and smooth it out and make it look like it's it's coherent, even if the answer is totally irrational, right? But you're not going to know what any of those sources are. You know, chat GPT is not going to tell you. And, and you know, um, well, you're probably aware chat GPT-4 was already integrated with Bing. And this was big news, you know, as I mentioned in my, in my uh, article, this news outweighed by far the announcement that scientists had achieved fucking nuclear fusion yes <laughs> right. this, was, this was bigger than that and you know again while i don't want to say it i'm certainly not saying it's nothing right I, I i just don't see this development in chat as being 
the major leap forward that it's it's advocated to be. It's nowhere closer to machines becoming self-aware or anything like that, which is of questionable value to begin with. Yeah, you know, true. but I, I do think, uh, uh, you know, I, I, it is it is certainly a step forward. It's it's not to be it's not to be denigrated in that way. And you know, recently a group of technologists and scientists signed a, a, some open letter to call for a pause on AI research. And it was signed by people like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak. And I, you know, despite some of the elite names on this document, I feel like it's kind of idiotic and it ignores the real issue, right? Uh, the research isn't the problem. And, you know, people will act as though technology is inevitable. And I feel like the research in AI is somewhat inevitable, right? If we if we put a stop on AI research, China's going to keep going. Everybody else is going to keep going. You know, they're going to come up with uh, advanced uh, technology in, in Singapore or wherever else. You know, America doesn't have, you know, the entire market on this. But the implementation is not inevitable. And we should really think about how we implement these things in the open market more clearly, I think, and anticipate more clearly the ramifications before doing these things. But if we can't, uh, if we can't acknowledge the destruction that basic social media yeah. has done to us already, we're definitely not going to get to that point. And especially in the United States where you know, the potential for profit outweighs anything else. Uh, I find there to be little chance that that we're going to think too too hard about uh, whether or not, you know, a company like Microsoft or Google should be allowed to. I mean, it's become intrinsic to people's sense of what freedom means in the United States, that it only means freedom to enter the market with whatever product you want. You can hold a monopoly, you can subjugate people, you can have people working as wage slaves, but everybody's become, you know, thoroughly convinced that that's what freedom means. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're never going to be able to face climate change or other potential disasters until we think a little differently about yeah. economics. Well, you know, even just little technological shifts that seemed reasonable and driven by the market at the time can have enormous outsized impacts. And so a good example of this is the like button on Facebook, where I think this was back in like 2007 or 2008, where on the comment sections on Facebook, people were leaving one word responses like great or love that or yay or whatever. And right. Instead, they were like, okay, that's redundant. We're going to insert a like button. So then people can like instead of leaving short, meaningless messages. What they found, what Facebook found was that that increased Facebook's addictiveness by an extraordinary amount. And suddenly the user engagement shot up and then Instagram and Twitter 
all implemented the like button because suddenly they realized, oh, this thing is super sticky. It's super powerful. It gets people to, to you know, stay. It, it keeps them coming back because you have to come back and check how many likes you have. And so it has that addictive quality. That was totally right. unpredictable. For the, posting, for the person posting, it's gamified. Yes, the, precisely. The social media uh, and environment, it's, and it's a and it's a um, it, it's a gambling slot machine. I mean, it, some days you'll get lots of likes, other days you won't get any likes at all, and that just triggers all of these systems in the human brain that make us compulsive and want to come back. The thing is, though. I don't know if anyone knew that that was going to be the outcome. They were just trying to reduce redundancy in in the comments section, and it res so this tiny tweak resulted in shifting the behavior of untold millions at this point, billions of people. And if right. we think about just that tiny tweak, and then how the market took it and ran with it, AI is at least to me intuitively a a much bigger creature than social media even though i mean i don't know it, it's hard to really grasp the impact of these technologies on us but the 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 feedback that you got was interesting to me that you were just talking about how you know, people were people were emailing you and being like, "You, I didn't peg you as an anti AI guy," and I kind of feel like that's to miss the point because a technology can be incredible and fantastic in the long term, but be devastating in the short term, like the printing press. And people always point to the printing press as like, oh, see, humanity can can, you know, deal with technological changes just fine. We don't need to worry about social media. And that's the point at which I point out. Yeah, the advent of the printing press sparked 300 years of brutal religious war. <laughs> like it takes a while for human beings, for these stupid fucking ape brains to figure out how to adjust to a new technological landscape. And so we, right. can, we can hold both of these things at once. Like on the one hand, yes, AI, it is an extraordinary technology and it's just going to keep getting better and it can lead to greater human flourishing if it's used well. And on the other hand, we can be very deeply, we can be really, really concerned about its application in the same way people should have been concerned about the printing press. Right. Well, we can plead ignorance on former implementations of social media algorithms, you know, the, the way, the way we've, we've formatted this information environment of ours. You know, my, my issue here is I just don't feel like we can plead ignorance anymore. And I think I see obvious negative outcomes from AI search engines and i don't feel like there's any excuse for those not being confronted up front already you know chat gpt is being sued for defamation um because it was claiming something about somebody having been convicted of some criminal act i think it's it's a politician running for office or something like that and uh, and now he's suing i think it was somebody running for mayor or, or something and you know, just to think that uh, I'm seeing these articles and, and 
they may or may not be accurate, but if they're accurate, they're saying that this is new territory and, you know, none of the parties know how to handle this. You would have thought this would have been one of the first fucking things that somebody would have thought of. Like, uh, well, what happens when it brings back an answer accusing somebody of something they hadn't done? It was one of the first <laughs> questions I had when I heard about it. But I feel like people don't appreciate how fragile a lot of different ecosystems are within the social universe or within the biological universe. I mean, if you're talking about just ecosystems, ecosystems, but you have the free market purists who recognize the economy as being this kind of fragile ecosystem where if you try to create a planned economy, there's all kinds of potential shortfalls and problems that come with that, that have been very much uh, explored by political scientists and other people who look at communist regimes that have tried to you know, have a tight grip on, on every aspect of the economy only to find all kinds of corruption, flourishing, black markets, and other such things that happen when you do those kinds of things. And then from there, you get a clearer idea of what restrictions are necessary, what kind of regulation is necessary, and what kind is bound to be counterproductive. And I think we're at the point right now where we could, you know, be more honest about breaking up monopolies and things like that, but we refuse to do it because people are making money. That's a whole different, it's a whole different story. But, you know, there's there's always a kind of balance. Right. And I feel yeah. like people don't appreciate that the information environment is a similarly fragile eco ecosystem. And if you try to have a planned information environment, things go wrong. A lot of times you have censorship, you know, and censorship often has a lot of unintended consequences, which people have heard me talk about again and again, because when I say, you know, that free speech is for everybody. You know, even the odious speech, people, of course, say, well, you're you're defending Nazis. You know, we, we just want Nazis to shut up and that kind of thing. And they don't understand that the principle holds. And overall, it's better to have neutral standards by which, you know, there's certain lines that can't be crossed. But beyond that, you're free to have whatever opinion you want. You're free to dislike whomever you want. You know, you're free to be an asshole within certain parameters, as long as you're not harassing people, defaming people, that kind of thing. And these, you know, these are the, the better ways to go about things. And I feel like when you have, you know, the voice of God giving the one answer on a search engine that people are relying upon, it has these parameters that say that it can't do certain things. There are going to be unintended consequences to that, that yeah. we don't even anticipate yet, but, can be catastrophic, especially when there is large scale as this. They can tell people that these AI tools are only tools and that they're only supposed to be used a certain way. But we have to be honest about how people use this shit too. Like Tesla rolled out self-driving cars with this prohibition against, you know, taking your eyes off the road and, and leaving it entirely to the car. But that's not what people are going to do. They're getting drunk and they're falling asleep <laughs> in the car while it drives home. They're giving and each other blowjobs while letting the car do the driving. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and you can say you're not supposed to use a chat search engine as the be-all, end-all answer, but it's exactly what's going to fucking happen if you're giving one answer to any question. Even if you have bullet-pointed answers like the the accuracy is compromised is inevitably going to be compromised by whatever 
standards you're trying to impress upon it to mitigate offense or anything else. It's it's already a losing proposition. I yeah, think. no, it is. And, you know, my first concern is so I did a House of Heretics show about this several weeks ago, and Timothy, my co-host, and I were playing around with chat GPT while on the show. And um, I, I should have saved it. Came up with I the prompt was an essay about Satanism in the voice of Lucian Greaves, and it gave some like weird slurry that was vaguely reminiscent of you. And <laughs> but what alarmed me the first time I saw ChatGPT was how it might influence the way people think. And I know that I know that I always sound like a boomer when I talk about this stuff and people always point out, oh, Plato was, you know, alarmed by books because that meant that, you know, the youth wouldn't be memorizing long texts anymore. Now they would be reading it and they wouldn't be able to remember it. Right. So there's there's always the fear from the old guard (laughs) from from grouchy old boomers about the way new technologies might be implemented and. However, that being acknowledged, I do think that there is something incredibly valuable to the human mind about putting words together on the page. There's something refining and meditative and incredibly contrary to human nature about that. Like the human mind is not evolved to do this. It's like we have to co-opt all these different systems in the brain to, to p- be able to write a sentence, to put that together. That isn't something that just comes naturally if you grow. You, we acquire language, spoken language naturally, but reading and writing is not something that we acquire naturally. That has to be taught. And there's something really powerful for the mind, willfully putting words together into sentences and then paragraphs and then stories and so on. And I kind of fear that chat GPT, as it starts to get better, will reduce our need to do that. It will be another shortcut to avoid the hard work of thinking on paper, linear thinking on paper. Well, I I would like to confront that because you're right. It comes up all the time. People will say, well, you know, people were pissed off about the printing press. People were pissed off about VCRs, that kind of thing. Yeah. But they point to things that were kind of vindicated in their ubiquity and their usage now and things like that. And I think it ignores the fact that, you know, we, I think generally in the world, people embraced social media. And I, I feel like, I mean, there, there's no argument. Uh, I, I can't persuade somebody one way or the other if they don't see it this way already. But I think at this point, we can say that something went seriously wrong with social media. Yeah. I think there were a lot of, of negative consequences that came from the ubiquity of Facebook and Twitter and other such things. And I, there's a whole history that, that, uh, that would justify this. But I think, you know, the worst elements of social media, I worry become hyperpowered with the use of AI when implemented in this way. And I also worry that when you're using AI to give you answers rather than as a tool to set up a framework by which you construct your own answers or whatever, is that 
I think more and more people will use the the path of least resistance. That's what you can count on mm-hmm. anything to really do. And people are going to really use these chat functions to justify the opinions they already hold. And I think they won't have any real introspection about that or any real concern about that. And they might not even recognize that that's what they're doing. But I feel like when somebody becomes offended by an idea, you know, what in likelihood will happen is they will ask ChatGPT how to argue for the opposite. And I think as time goes on, I predict that chat search engines will become similar to the search engines we have now in that they will try to construct an answer for the individual who's asking the question. Oh, absolutely. It will that, be I think, is, yeah, I think is, is a terrible thing to have happen. And I think then you definitely will have people being given the justifications for their opinion that they're asking for. It will be constructed to do that. It won't be constructed to correct anybody because that's not the easy, that's not the easy sell. You know, that's not what the market immediately wants. You know, people aren't going to want to hear, you know, tough love from an AI machine just saying like, look, you're fucking wrong. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. People will start throwing their computers against the wall and saying, fuck this. I'm going to whichever company is, you know, is willing to cater to my needs. Yeah. And I, and in my article, I included, you know, the, uh, the dickhead CEO oh, of what is oh, it? Gab. I, yeah. I was about to read that. Hold on. Let me let me read this section out loud because it's fucking wild. Hold on. Torba goes on to assert that quote, AI is a mirror reflection of the people who program it within a set of boundaries. But what happens when you give AI no boundaries and allow it to speak freely? The AI becomes incredibly based and starts talking about taboo truths no one wants to hear. This has happened repeatedly and led to several previous generations of AI systems being shut down rather quickly. And then later, quote, we need to build AI for the glory of God, one that can communicate the truth of the gospel to millions of people, not some relativistic, secular, watered-down nonsense about the gospel, but the gospel in all its glory as the ultimate truth. (laughs) Well, to fully understand how offensively idiotic his commentary is you have to realize what he's talking about when he talks about previous generations of ai being shut down for speaking some kind of universal truths to power and what happened in reality in those cases was you know people tried gaming the system to make the ai say extremely racist and offensive shit like uh microsoft rolled out this tay chat um they they named it tay t-a-y and it was on it was twitter based and it was a chat bot that would respond to things or whatever so immediately people started feeding it racist shit and it started saying things you know uh in defense of nazism and hitler and and saying you know offensive things against atheists and different religious groups and just ridiculous they had to take it they took it offline and Surely, you know, these are the great truths that this this asshole is referring to. (laughs) But, you know, I think people have become very, very complacent about the idea of politically motivated. Well, at least people on the left, I think, have become 
complacent about the idea of politically motivated um, algorithmic structures and the rest, because, you know, even though you hear rumblings about the conservative persuasion of like YouTube, which I, I really believe, I mean, YouTube is always trying, I never watch conservative shit and youtube is always trying to get me to i don't know who the fuck is responsible for that in youtube ben shapiro do you get do you get stuff for, about it but, do you get stuff right. for ben shapiro and and prager you as well right but you right right well ben shapiro like i, I think youtube made ben shapiro yes youtube i, did. I don't know he, if he was like made in a lab that whiny little fucker if it wasn't for <laughs> youtube trying to get everybody to listen to him but i think you know, to to see that people are still that kind of, you know, so laid back about it, even with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and having his kind of born again Republican moment, I feel is really kind of really short sighted and, and yeah, and well, dumb. I, I mean, it, it could happen that somebody of the same mindset of the CEO of Gab you know, ends up taking over Facebook or something. We have no idea at this point, you know? I've thought for a really long time about free speech and cultivating a healthy society while Twitter and Facebook are in the mix. And so much of the problem, I think, is it it's kind of like this, this boundary trespassing Lovecraftian monster that is a it, it is a business masquerading as the public square. It is, it has the illusion of impartiality. So it is like a telecom. So it's like a telephone uh, network, but it is also algorithmically manipulating data. So it is also a publisher. So it is a business that is masquerading as the public square, that is pretending to be a neutral platform like a, like a telecom company, while also essentially being a publisher through impersonal algorithmic systems that are soullessly preferring some content over others, boosting some content over others in ways that even the people who make it don't fully understand. So this is right. it's a it's a new creature. It is a new thing that I feel like the human race hasn't had to deal with before. And we we used to have these tidy categories. We used to have these clear categories that have been built over centuries of, you know, sometimes literal bloodshed, uh, you know, and and in texts like Area Pagitica by Milton and figuring out free speech and figuring out what a business is and figuring out the public square and figuring out all this shit. And now it's like, OK, social media is now here to just completely fuck it all up. <laughs> right, right. And I think people, you know, social scientists and the like have kind of undervalued the problem because I will see these papers written where they'll determine that, you know, the people who are really persuaded most, you know, are a minority. They'll say, you know, it's like one to two percent of the population, you know, really seem to be deeply affected, um, you know, and move to action by some of this stuff. In a, in a negative way, you mean, like persuaded by like conspiracy theories and whatnot? Right, right. Or, you know, regardless of, of whether it's positive or negative, mm. just whether that kind of barrage of propaganda is meaningful enough to get them to change their vote or change their behavior or whatever. 
So, you know, if you really lowball it and say it's like 1% of the population, um, you know, to a lot of people, that sounds like maybe it's negligible. It isn't, you know, no. 1% of the population is enough to change the world. It's enough to change votes. It's enough to, yes. uh, you know, change the outcome of elections. You have highly persuadable people who are highly motivated due to bad information. And pretty soon they're controlling the entire dialogue, which I kind of feel is happening on social media right now. Everybody's acting like an idiot that they're not necessarily because you have the loudest idiots at the extreme polarized ends of the political spectrum and people who feel cowed into silence because they don't want to be deemed an enemy by speaking against whatever they say. So whereas you had kind of a spectrum of liberal behavior previously and a general consensus that you know, we're on the side of science and the conservatives are anti-science. You also see people applauding this idea. Well, it's just science is a, is a white Western construct or whatever. And everybody feels like they need to give that likes and pretend that that's what they believe and that now we can abandon science because, you know, loud people are angry about, about science all of a sudden because they, uh, they, they didn't like, you know, uh, something a scientist said or, or whatever, or, or they, they, they don't like what they determine to be inevitable about the data, which isn't refuted itself or whatever, you know? And so now you have like two ends of a political spectrum, both hyperbolically anti-science people afraid to say anything one way or the other on either side. And I think you just have, you know, I think you have the idiot 1%, yeah. the highly persuadables, controlling most of the dialogue right now. And I think, you know, trolls, the real damage in trolls, I think, is, isn't is so much that you necessarily believe the troll, but they get everybody to behave like them. Everybody starts behaving like a troll. Yes. You know, people say the most bombastic things, they get the most interactions, you know what I mean? They People like it even if they don't like it, or at least they're commenting on it because they're pissed off about it, you know? And pretty soon, just everybody's talking about what the biggest idiots on either end of the spectrum are saying. And that begins to have a persuasive effect, too. I think also some of this is, you know, some of the analysis here has been too short term. I think you have the highly persuadable people who jump right on board and they see a fight and they don't care which side they're on. They just want to be out on the street punching somebody and they want to be on social media blaming somebody for everything that's wrong in the world. And then you have the other people who aren't that persuadable, but, you know, they see where they're coming from and they're not going to argue against it. I think once you let that set in for a while, you know, even the more moderate people start really becoming the idiots that they weren't before. This is all making me remember a poem that the blogger Astral Codex 10 posted. And it's a long one. It's it's long. So I, I'll just read the first stanza. It's very funny. He says, as you travel the twists of Twitter, as you pass through the lands of Zuck and the frogs and the pinks overwhelm you with links and the links overwhelmingly suck. When the Redditors ask if you've read it, when the TikTokers talk and tick, hold this admonition close to your breast. It's bad on purpose to make you click. And <laughs> it's like it is the, the rising of the shit to the the deliberately outrageous stuff the the bad on purpose stuff the stuff that it the algorithms favor the bad stuff 
to make you click, and then that warps your perception of the world. And I swear to God, every single time I log on to Twitter now, which is very rare, I just use Twitter for work now. And, and whenever I log in, it's like I have to suit up. I like I imagine that I'm getting on like radi- radiation gear, like I'm going into Chernobyl or something. And so I like mentally prepare myself and I log in and I swear to God, it's like that scene of the insane asylum at the beginning of the film Amadeus. Like people are screaming, there's shit on the walls, there's blood everywhere, there are naked people throwing shit at each other. It's just complete mayhem. And when when you are off of Twitter for a while and then you get back on to it it is absolutely fucking insane to think that i was ever used to that 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 was just normal seeing that and and that i had kind of adjusted to it but after you take a break and then you get back on you realize holy shit this is not normal the way people talk to each other on here is not normal <laughs> right 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 yeah and, and I think it, it, I mean, honestly, at this point, I think it needs to be regulated. We keep having these show trials where yeah. Congress will have the CEOs of the tech companies sitting there. And as much as I despise these guys, they're also a product of their position. I think Zuckerberg genuinely was always like a libertarian left-leaning guy. But when it comes to making trillions in profit, and, you know, having, you know, higher, higher profits than, you know, than, you know, most civilized nations, like that's going to make you ignore a lot of damage you're doing. That's right? right. And yeah. so for them to sit these guys down and say, well, hey, you're collecting this data, you're doing all these things. Why are you doing these things? It just strikes me as so fucking disingenuous. It's because if they don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. So if they stop doing it, they're just putting themselves at a disadvantage. So the only way to stop them doing it is implementing rules that say you can't do it. And they might not necessarily be opposed to that in an environment where nobody else can do it. They're not at a disadvantage. Sometimes regulation isn't actually hurting anybody, but nobody's going to take the action to do these things until there's a regulation in place because you just don't want to be the one who falls behind. And then they get all pissed off about TikTok. And believe me, I'm 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 not one to advocate for China at all. I do not. I really think, you know, uh, I, I, I'm really disturbed by the progress of China. And yeah. And, and to be clear, we're talking about the the uh, Chinese, uh, the the um, Communist Party of China, the CPC, not the, the people of China, just to be clear right, the, to the people who might. Of Mao. Yeah. Yes, the, just to be clear right. to the people who might want to deliberately misconstrue our words. Um, we're, <laughs> right. we're talking about the government, not the people. Yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. There are a lot of people in China who I don't think we do any service to by pretending that this is just, uh, you know, that. The Chinese Communist Party is just a cultural dysfunction because there, there yeah. are people who've been lobbying for democracy there for a long time. But all that aside, it's like, so we're what if we ban TikTok, right? I mean, that seems very cosmetic. Is there anything to stop TikTok from buying that information from fucking Facebook? Yeah, exactly. You know, In- I, I, 
no, I mean, it, it. this is why regulation needs to happen. I'm a believer in capitalism, uh, but it needs to be limited. So, you know, I'm a normie liberal. I'm I'm one of those normie liberals that all the streamer bros on Twitch and YouTube want to throw rocks at <laughs> because I'm not far left enough. But if there isn't moderation of these huge platforms, then they will eat everything alive. They will eat us alive. Right. I think a regulated capitalism defends competition. And yes. as much as these, you know, uh, these people claim to be free market libertarians claim that they're just promoting uh, competition by not regulating anything. No, at a certain point, you know, the monopolies kill competition entirely. And I think we exactly. can see we can see that now with the tech companies. We really had a boom at the point where they were talking about breaking up Microsoft and Microsoft, uh, you know, was actually suffered sanctions from embedding its uh, its search engine within its operating system and things like that. Things we, we just wouldn't do now. You know, it, we had the boom of the new tech companies now, but now everything's become stagnant, stale, tired, old and complacent. I mean, when when's the last time you thought of Google as an innovator? They're just not. They're not doing anything new anymore. You don't see any. Yeah, you don't really see any improvements on a on a damn thing. Yeah, and that's because they can just buy up any competition. They can, you know, build moats around their around their structure. And I feel like you know we we have to get over this aversion to uh prog to progress that might affect an industry. I mean, Facebook has remarkably few employees for the amount of money it pulls in. Mm -hmm. But I really feel like for the betterment of, you know, nothing less than national security, we need to destroy its entire business model. And I honestly think the regulation should be as hard as you just don't build a personalized environment for people online. You, you don't you don't predicate your business upon data collection on individuals Agreed. that people see the same thing when they log in whether they fucking like it or not. Agreed. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I recommend that everyone read Jaron Lanier. His, he's a visionary of Silicon Valley. He is the godfather of augmented reality and virtual reality. He's also one of the architects of Internet 2.0. So he's been around and he's a big deal. He's a philosopher of technology. And his book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, or whatever it's called, or for Leaving Social Media Right Now, uh, is very good. And he lays out very persuasive and very powerful arguments for why this technology is bad that everyone should read. Yeah, and and just look up surveillance capitalism. The uh, the author who wrote the first book using that term, Sushana Zukov or somebody mm -hmm. like that. Uh, you know, that that was a really, really good book. And, and that's kind of the terminology now that people use when they talk about this, this, this model, this business model of, of dealing in people's private information and, and, you know, giving them uh, manufactured results based upon their, their personality and things like that. That's referred to as, as surveillance capitalism. I think the surveillance capitalist model needs to be entirely gutted. It needs to be that, that, that's just, that needs to be how we do not operate. Anymore. Yes, absolutely. No, I completely agree. It needs to be a thing of the past, like feudalism. But so regarding AI, what are your primary concerns with AI when it comes to Satanists in particular, the, the potential 
harms or risks that can come to minority religious communities like Satanists? Well, that's why I think it's it's valid for me to, to even speak about these things, uh, because I think just knowing that I'm a Satanist writing about this would give somebody a different perspective reading. I, I, but I thought that about free speech, too. And yet people will come back and say, well, you're just defending Nazis. And when I'm saying that you realize people, uh, you know, say that what we do is hate speech when it's clearly not. You know, we, when we're advocating for our own affirmative values, no matter what we're doing, you know, there's some Christian group that's going to be claiming that what we're doing is simply done to insult them. That is, it's hate speech against them. And if you have somebody making the preemptive determination that that's what we're doing and we never get a chance to justify ourselves and we're just stuck, you know, and how much more dangerous does that become when something as powerful as the search engine that everybody refers to has denigrated a group of people in that way? Mm-hmm. Has said that Satanism is this one thing, you know, a majority of sources have spoken and said that Satanism can only be some veneration of criminality, cruelty, anti-human behavior, and attached to the worst impulses of of deranged and, and antisocial people. Uh, how do you crawl out of that? How do you crawl out of that hole? You know, that that's the dystopian future here, where it's like you have you have something like a, a search engine that just provides one answer that's drawing from a wealth of previous material that's gotten something wrong. And then it further leads people to believe that those old opinions were correct. And pretty soon there's just no breaking out of it. And I feel like that's a, that's a horrific, it's a horrific concept. And it, it does depend on who's behind the wheel, you know, and, and who's really setting the parameters on the, on the AI. But if, if the determination kind of came in that there is no redeeming Satanism, Satanism and these people who claim to be self-identified Satanists now are only using a kind of new and invalid interpretation, they, they can be, that's negligible and that's not worth, that's not worth acknowledging. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a plausible outcome. And then where does that leave us? Yeah, like, you know, if the algorithm somehow internalizes church militant calling you a pedophile or whatever the case may be, right? Or 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 people from the ISSTD, right? Because there there are multiple sources where you would get yes. people making those kinds of accusations. And I, you know, I speak freely about that because that's you know, so far from the reality of who I am, you know. Of course. But it's just but uh uh and I refuse to be terrorized by those kinds of claims, you know? And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I could also see a world where if an AI is trained on just massive amounts of material online, then won't it internalize the majority biases? I mean, I, this is me having no expertise in AI whatsoever, but like in, in a Christian nation, in a nation that is still predominantly Christian, if it is trained on the, you know, fever swamp of right-wing media and that just enormous ecosystem of right-wing lunacy, 
and uh, people should, <laughs> if, if for anyone who is deep in their progressive bubble, just go, just go hang out on the Daily Wire for a bit and see. And, and the Daily Wire is actually fairly center right for online media outlets, online right wing media outlets. They they have a strong nationalistic Christian bias that is allergic to any kind of outsider, any kind of LGBTQ minority, so on and so forth, and very allergic to Satanists. And I could see that tipping AI in a particular direction if there isn't a finger on the scale prohibiting it from some, from doing that. Yeah, well, I mean, well, think of being a... Uh, it, public individual you know who people look up yeah like (laughs) oh no i know of what my my legacy will i I have no idea i'm not as famous as you are but i but i mean there are articles going around the internet about how i'm a crypto fascist and shit so yeah no i i'm i'm there too it's horrifying what i think about that like what might the internet say about me in five years right yeah, no, it, it's it's difficult to say, but I think we're better off if there's, like I said, multiple sources listed <laughs> by their source rather than somebody, you know, a, a chat system just trying to relay a single answer conversationally for things that just uh, beg for the whole laundry list. So what would getting AI right look like? To you. Like, well, I think like, there's a lot. Uh, I think yeah. there's a lot already that's getting AI right, and and you know, in the field of diagnostics, mm-hmm. I think AI is going to do an incredible job when it comes to, you know, I, I I I do see a future in which people are able to do, you know, kind of automated checkup and get a a real, real good, precise, you know, diagnostic readout of anything that that's possibly wrong with them, you know, due to AI systems. I think, you know, part of the beauty of AI is that, you know, its benefits are unpredictable as well. You know, at a certain point you set it free and you can't keep track of all of the, what the AI is doing because the AI is, you know, using so many data sets in so many ways and teaching itself how to use it that, you know, it'll come up with solutions for various things. I just think, you know, one of the worst things it could be used for is a search engine. Yes, I'm, I'm actually, I completely I'm actually agree. Really, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really optimistic about a lot of what of what AI could do. I think AI will start writing programs for us. AI already, you know, yeah, they're already doing that. And, yes, right, right. But I think it'll get better and more advanced at that. And there's no reason. I think after I think this is what we're seeing right now is also the future of AI. It'll get better at the things it's doing. But I think uh, the idea of AI reaching self-awareness is losing its luster to yeah, a certain degree. I, I was actually just about to ask you about that. What do you think of artificial general intelligence? So for people who don't know what that is, there's AI and then there is AGI. 
AI are systems that can be trained on very specific things and do those things very, very well. You can train an artificial intelligence on a large language model, then ask it questions like ChatGPT, and it will come up with some, you know, confection for you. So that is AI. Artificial general intelligence is what we are. Artificial, or not what we, we have general intelligence. And general intelligence is the sort of broad self-reflective, maybe conscious sort of intelligence that can teach itself, that can create other things, that can teach those things, that can expand uh, its, its knowledge of its own volition in many, many, many different fields. So it, it has a general knowledge base and general intelligence in multiple spheres. This is this is me having read maybe three articles on artificial general intelligence. So go look it up and don't trust a single word that I just said. But that is my understanding of AGI. What are your thoughts on um, the possibility of AGI emerging or conscious machines, conscious networks emerging? Well, I, I have to you know, I have to state once more that this is outside my expertise. So it's it's totally I, I read about this all the time, though. And, and I, I've, I've read about deep learning systems and, and you know, I've, I've read concerns about about AI. And, you know, there's that famous example of, you know, the idea of an AI that's just meant to create paper clips, destroying the world because it, you know, just kind of takes over everything and starts turning everything into paper clips or whatever. But I, I do think that if we approach it carefully, we can always put a kind of kill switch on it. You could put a cap on on paper clips, and <laughs> you know, there there are there there is the possibility of the AI determining like, well, I could make more if I could bypass this kill switch and find a way to do this, like anticipating that it's there, kind of thing. But I think there's ways to safeguard against that also. And I also just kind of feel like, you know, there's this concern that something would become self-aware and then it would be motivated, yeah. you know, to do one thing or another, that it would care about its survival and replication. But that's not necessarily something that non-biological would do, you know, inherent in, in our programming is, is survival and, and replication. and We can't imagine it any other way. You know, an AI system, even a conscious one, might not give a shit if it's turned off, if it has no, you know, motivational impulse, you know, no kind of yeah. uh, basic structure that, that tells it that it's it's survival and replication are are, 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 are what's really necessary. I really kind of feel like, you know, people are going to start programming neurobiological systems and things like I think the idea of just having a kind of computer general intelligence is kind of going to fade away with other usages of AI. I mean, that that might be a very ignorant assumption, and, and maybe that's not the way it would go. But I also look at some of the uh, sci-fi and history, you know, where they'll, they'll show environments in which people have robots and stuff like that. And even the fucking toaster is talking to them or whatever. <laughs> Independently, it's not networked, you yes. know, and you just think, why would you want that? Why would you even build that? Why do you need a <laughs> cognizant closet, you know, telling you what to wear and stuff? Like, wouldn't that be fucking tedious after a certain point? But I do think people will use, you know, modular systems of AI with specific functions. And, you know, 
perhaps overusing those in 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 cases of decision making and stuff like that. And that's what where it comes, you know, to the point of you know trying to moderate people's personal responsibility and things like that. But you know, I, I will admit, I was more concerned about the idea of world destructive AI coming into cognizance and, and running amok and figuring out how to go online and you know just being unstoppable from there before uh, you know yes, before I, I felt there was a bit more <laughs> legitimacy to that and I, I feel like now i feel like that was kind of a failure of mine to see the real problems that were just on the horizon which i think are popping up now no it's true but you know we've all been we've always had like this vision of a technological apocalypse where the computers like take over the world and invade us Meanwhile, that had already happened. That had already happened with social media. The, those algorithms had already invaded our psyches, and they had already kind of shaped reality. And so it was already here. The, the invasion had already happened. Um, and I don't know. I, I always, there's always something, it always struck me as, a, as, as religious, uh, the the conversation around AI and the singularity, the singularity for people who don't know, being the moment that that super intelligence kind of blossoms in in computers and are able and have general intelligence and like this super intelligence that just escalates way beyond what we are capable of and you know taking over the universe or whatever, right? It always felt mystical to me. It always felt like a religion to me. And I don't say that in a bad way. I mean, I'm part of a religion too, but it it always felt aspirational and mythical rather than it was it was like a, a future myth that these, you know, that a lot of AI people are reaching towards. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm really skeptical about claims of AI developing consciousness or reaching artificial general intelligence. And part of the reason is because I'm not sure that we actually have a good understanding of our own consciousness and our own mind. And we, we are assuming that the human mind is like a computer. We are assuming that the human brain functions like a computer but but we might actually be imposing our current technology onto ourselves and we've we have a habit of doing this right we have a habit of whenever a new technology comes along we have a habit of imposing that technology onto ourselves so when hydraulics came along suddenly we were these hydraulic systems when clockwork came along suddenly everything was clockwork including us and it might be that the human brain and human consciousness is still so unbelievably complex and so incomprehensibly mysterious that we might just be completely off about what makes us conscious in the first place. We don't know what well, makes to us bring, conscious. To, to bring it back to that uh, criticism that people complained about books and that it would prevent people from learning you know, to, to memorize text. Well, they, books really did change our consciousness. Yes, and, they did. you know, they found that, that the increase in reading, the increase in literacy has a, a trade-off in your cognitive system. 
Yep. And part of that trade-off that we've dealt with, and, and surely anybody here listening has naturally suffered uh, just by virtue of being born in our time and in our place, is that our, our facial recognition is, is severely diminished by the fact that we're, uh, that we're more literate through time and this so this this really has changed humanity to us to a certain degree so we can't pretend that this is all just uh you know this is all just hyperbolic outrage or anything mm. like that we mm-hmm. we do need to think about these things in advance and i think you know the the uh apocalyptic stories of ai are kind of the flip side of what you were talking about this religious mysticism with the ai but it's i think it's still based upon the same same premise you know the idea that ai can become conscious and thereby be destructive because it's not human and we have to be suspicious of something that's not human being more powerful than us uh, legitimately there's also that hope that if we can create you know a neural network you know using circuitry using computer parts that we can also upload our consciousness and thereby become immortal, and I, I think uh, I, I think those two <laughs> viewpoints kind of feed each other to the point where people want to hold on to the apocalyptic scenario because they also want to believe that we're at the edge of becoming immortal ourselves. I, I really think that that's kind mm. of an underlying motivator for some people and their beliefs here. But I think the real concern right now is whether or not we use AI to supplement our intelligence or use it as a replacement for it, you know? Yeah. Like there's a two-tier process in social media where social media is at first trying to tell you, trying to show you what it thinks you want to see based on your character profile that they're building and they're not... Uh, obligated to disclose whatever whatever points they use to put together that profile, but you know apparently they they have very good ways of measuring exactly who they think you are, and you know that you know eventually leads to the second tier where it's it, it tries molding you into who you should be to mm-hmm. be a a better consumer. You know it, it doesn't just tell you what you want to buy what you already wanted to buy, it persuades you to buy those things. And that's when it's really optimized, right? And I think that's that's obviously the direction this goes in a hmm. in a market economy. Yeah, definitely. No, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean I don't think that what where where do I want to go with this? I think yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the main concern is how are we using these systems to think? And I'm someone who, for whatever reason, I'm really passionate about thinking about thinking, you know, thinking, thinking about how we exist in the world as thinkers and how the systems we use kind of shape our thinking and how, how we think. Um, because to quote Sam Harris, all we have is our minds. Um, at the end of the day, all I have to offer someone else is my mind. And so that the that that makes this really, really important. Yeah. And one thing I can't stress enough, though, is that I just have no respect for that argument that this is just 
this is just the future. It's inevitable. And this is what happens. Implementations are not inevitable. That's you true. know, they, they are not. The, the structure of social media right now, it was not inevitable. It doesn't have to be this way. It, it, it's not it's not something we have to treat as permanent or, as, or irreplaceable or, or something that can't be intervened upon. And it's the same thing for implementation of AI. We really need to think about rational ways to safely implement these things so that they're constructive and productive and don't bring upon any more social devastation than we've already seen with the implementation of social media as it is now. Yeah, definitely. So the talk of AI has made me think about one of my favorite topics, which is consciousness. Um, and it, it just makes me wonder, have you ever experimented with, uh, psychedelics or a meditation practice? Have you ever explored consciousness in that way? Yeah. Uh, not much, you know, I've, I've, uh, I really smoked a lot of weed over COVID and I, you know, <laughs> I still, I still smoke, uh, well, not necessarily smoke, but ingested anyways, THC abuse happens to me typically every movie night. Nice. You didn't well. know I gathered. I whenever I go to the movie night, I'm like, everyone here is trashed. Right. <laughs> it makes for a very <laughs> fun nonsense. time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it all makes sense at the time, but I think if we read over the whole chat dialogue and watched it again, <laughs> if it were recorded, we'd say, "What the fuck?" But uh, but uh, I took uh, psilocybin one time. Uh, high safe dose, according to Johns Hopkins uh, study oh, standards. What was, what was the dosage? Oh, I don't remember. It was okay. by weight. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, at the time, this was a while ago, and I knew a chemist and actually made, you know, made uh, psilocybin pills. And psilocybin is the psycho psychoactive component in mushrooms. I did mushrooms a, a different time and i thought it would be the same as the psilocybin but i actually liked it a lot less i felt like i, I didn't feel like i had any uh uh toxins really in me when i had the psilocybin it was all this psychoactive effect mm. but when i uh took mushrooms i had to pee a lot i was kind of sweating a lot i kind of grew pale and cold and uh, it, it was it wasn't terribly pleasant it was it wasn't unpleasant. It wasn't a bad trip kind of thing so much, but it was just kind of like, uh, you know, it, it just felt more body oriented in a bad way. You know, right. like I, I was more outside my body with the psilocybin and if the mushrooms like I had to deal with deal with sweating and shit like that. It, it, kind of, it really takes you out of it. But um, but that's about it. That's about as far as my experimentation has gone. I, I mean, worse drugs were always around me. You know, when I was younger and things of like course. that. And I think unlike a, unlike a lot of people, it really turned me off to some stuff that I've just never bothered to to try. Me too. No, I'm um, I have the brain of like a Victorian housewife who's locked in the attic and escapes and runs around the moors in her nightgown at 3 a.m. Yeah. That's that's like my brain on a regular basis. And so I'm just always aware that. I can be very destabilized. And so I don't ever even do THC. I don't even drink. I am as dry and sober as 
a Baptist pastor pretends to be. And, and so I just meditate. I meditate every morning. But I'm fascinated by both meditation and psychedelics because uh, because I'm fascinated by consciousness and by the experience of consciousness and what is it. Listeners will know this about me. I'm I'm a weird woo Satanist, and so I have philosophers of consciousness on. I've had Philip Goff on. I've had multiple philosophers of consciousness. And no, I mean, the, the topic of AI and consciousness is interesting because it kind of forces us to consider, well, what is it that makes us conscious. We can technically look at, we, we technically can't detect consciousness in another creature. It, it, just by looking at the brain doing what it does with the tools that we have, we can't determine whether that thing is conscious or not. We just see an object following the laws of physics. And, and if anybody doubts that, they can just look at any of the ignorant ass articles that are always posted on like mainstream pop science bullshit sites where they talk about ah oh, scientists have figured out that your cat actually does have affection for you when it sits on your lap and purrs or whatever and it's like <laughs> everybody fucking knew that everybody, everybody but they publish those bullshit articles all the time and all it does is tell you how little they fucking know definitely well i won't i won't uh bore you terribly with my consciousness talk um but i yeah, I mean the the topic of AI is interesting because it kind of forces us to to explore what is it that makes something conscious and what is it that makes us conscious and what is consciousness, but for people who want to dive more deeply into that, go listen to my episodes with Philip Goff and others. I think we're at the end. Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, uh no. Oh, tell people no. when your movie nights are since we since we mentioned your movie nights. Oh, Wednesdays at uh well pre-shows start at six PM Eastern and uh and the features at eight. But uh they're free. You go to the satanic temple TV and click on the live link on a Wednesday night for uh for one of the movie nights. We'll, we'll be there. And uh you don't know other other than the other than, uh, you know, philosophizing about AI and things like that, I've just been preparing for a couple of Satanic Planet shows and Satan Con. So, oh, that's right. I won't be able to, be. I won't be there this year at Satan Con. I'm very sad, but hopefully I'll be there next year. Oh, well, hopefully Satanic Planet will come through your area sometime soon, too. I, I'm hoping after our second album, we, Oh, that'd be great. We get out and do a fuller tour. Through, yeah. through Asheville or Charlotte? That'd be fantastic. Um, I, don't, I don't know right now. Right now we have uh, Brooklyn and Boston, and that's it. So nice. No, you should definitely come to Asheville. I, th these crazy Asheville people would absolutely love you. They, they will be down with Satanic Planet. I loved Asheville last time I was there, so when, that would be when fun. When were you here last time? It was probably like eight years ago now. But Nice. Yeah, Asheville is a good place. It it's getting very okay. I have to tell this one story about Asheville, and then I will, and then we'll wrap up the show. It is becoming a frat boy town. Like downtown Asheville is becoming intolerable. Like it's just a bunch of like super drunk frat boys and businessmen on vacation, just vomiting on the side of the street. That's like the Alston Brighton area in Boston. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And it, <laughs> the rest of Asheville is very cool. Like the river arts district and surrounding areas are very, very cool. However, downtown Asheville is fucking disgusting. And 
my partner, he was uh, doing a, a ghost tour in Asheville like last year or so. He was like, I'm bored. I'm going to go on this on this ghost tour. So he was on this ghost tour and this woman emerges from one of the beer gardens in downtown Asheville and she is dressed as Little Riding Hood and she is drunk out of her mind and she just lifts her dress and she is wearing nothing beneath it in front of the in front of the tour on the streets of Asheville and then just starts violently fingering herself like Blair like um like Linda Blair from The Exorcism uh, with a crucifix. just and So did she have like a hat out for tips or anything? I, she should have. Was this her way of busking? Was that just I hope so. Impromptu I, live show? Impromptu live show. And then one of John's co-tour uh, goers said in a thick um, Middle Eastern accent, I think we had a sighting. <laughs> Anyway, so that's what Asheville is like now. So everyone should come and hang out in Asheville. Lucian might do a show in Asheville. If so, that would be fantastic. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is produced with the help of my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>